Hey, Joel. What's up, Tim? It's been 20 years since Independence Day came out, and every year we have an alien invasion movie blowing up some big national landmark or every major city around the world. It's, it's getting kind of annoying. Oh, yeah? Yeah. When are we finally going to have aliens attack somewhere else for a change, like Boise or Tuscaloosa or Sweden? You know, it's small-town America's turn to get picked on. Tim, I think you're being kind of super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. There are a lot of movie podcasts out there, but this is probably the only one where you have a team of experts watching movies about nuclear weapons and then needlessly overthinking them. As always, you can listen to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and YouTube. And I'm also happy to announce we're also on Stitcher Radio and tune in. Basically, wherever you listen to podcasts, we will find you. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, at Nuclear Podcast. I'm Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies and thinks about nuclear policy for a living. But you know what? I'm just like you. I put my pants on one leg at a time. Except, once my pants are on, I tend to go to the movies and complain loudly about how they portray nuclear weapons. Fortunately, my co-host Joel is usually nice enough to talk the theater ushers into letting me stay. Hi, this is Joel. Speaking of ushers, uh, I spent two summers working at a movie theater, cleaning up popcorn and uh, milk duds. So that makes me eminently qualified to join my friend Tim here to discuss nuclear policy issues and nuclear weapons in movies. Well, Joel, happy to have you back. I know you were traveling. Good to be back. Yeah, traveling for work for a couple of episodes. Today, uh, I'm glad you're here because we stepped back 20 years Back to a time where it was okay to watch uh, New York City and D.C. get blown to smithereens because we watched the Academy Award-winning 1996 sci-fi epic Independence Day. And as the movie poster tells us, the question of whether or not we are alone in the universe has been answered. Dot, dot, dot. Can I just say, I can't help but laugh when you said the Academy Award-winning movie Independence Day. What, what Academy Award did it win? Well, it won. Uh, it had a, quite a good amount of CGI effects in there. It won the Academy Award for the best visual effects, which I will not argue with. At the time, groundbreaking. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's like, you know, Academy Award winning film for best credits editing. It's like, yeah, someone put a lot of time and effort into it. The person who helmed this movie to win the Academy Award was uh, Roland Emmerich, who we're sure we know from lots of disaster movies like Godzilla, The Day After Tomorrow, White House Down, 2012, the 10,000 BC, Stargate, and of course, The Patriot for some reason. Uh, I guess a different type of disaster for the British. <laughs> Throwback. Yep. Uh, also written by uh, Dean Devlin and also Roland Emmerich, the director. Uh, just had quite a big cast at the time, and a number of big stars came out of this. So why don't you run us through the, the cast role here, Joel? Who's in this? Sure. Uh, well, well, let me first – I just thought this was a funny aside as we were looking up the movie. I thought it was an interesting story of how this movie came to be as far as the storyline. Um, apparently, after a while, Roland Emmerich was doing promotions for Stargate. He got interviewed by a reporter who started asking about, you know, extraterrestrial life, stuff like that. He stated that he didn't actually believe in aliens, 
And so the reporter was kind of quizzing him on, you know, why he didn't believe in aliens and stuff like that. He kind of made like this quip of the aliens come down. They're not going to just go to some cornfield and hide out or, you know, stick in some guy's brain and control mm -hmm. their bodies. You know, they're probably going to make their presence known. And he made the joke about some 15 mile wide alien ship making its presence known. And that's your presence with authority. Right, exactly. And apparently this is the story that it goes is that he went back and he... I guess he didn't email at the time. He probably called him up on a rotary phone. But he said, Dean, I think I have an idea for a movie. And then while they're on vacation, they actually came up with the story, wrote it up, and sent it off to, I think it was Fox, uh, and they greenlit it almost immediately. They're like, we got to see this 15-mile-wide alien ship. And history was made. Exactly. So fast forward from a screenplay to actually getting this movie done. Uh, a great cast of characters. Uh, it's hard to think of a more 90s movie star than Will Smith. Right. But the funny thing is, is that this was the movie that made Will Smith that international star. Yeah, at the time, you know, we all knew him from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, but had no idea that he could carry this box office pretty much on his own. Exactly. I think he'd been in Bad Boys and, and maybe one or two other films that did well, but nothing like the, I think after this, he was in a movie every July 4th for years and years. And July 4th always... was known as Will Smith Weekend. Yep, exactly. We have kind of an ensemble cast led by Will Smith. He plays Captain Stephen Hiller. He's an F-18 pilot. Bill Pullman playing President Thomas Whitmore, who probably in the pantheon of Hollywood and media is just behind Jed Bartlett for <laughs> most famous president. Um, Former Gulf War pilot in exactly. the movie, yeah. Yep. Uh, Jeff Goldblum, who plays the perennial nerd slash geek, uh, David Levinson. Uh, Randy Quaid plays Russell Cassie, who's kind of a down-on-his-luck alcoholic uh, crop duster uh, who's having trouble at home with his kids and he's got a, a past he was abducted by aliens a long time ago and no one no one believed him and i guess until until this day when the aliens show up exactly uh robert loja playing a, a general kind of one of the he's basically the main stereotypical voice or perspective of the military uh here mary mcdonald who plays the first lady uh, who i know has a, a lot of executive experience yep, I, just wanna, I want to point out uh she was first lady in this movie and then a few years later she got promoted to being the president of the colonies in battlestar galactica so she she did well for herself uh, and then we had Vivica Fox, who plays Jasmine, who's uh, Will Smith's uh, love interest, who kind of has her own survival uh, storyline uh, while fighting against aliens out in space. Yep. And a bunch of other big cameos. Uh, Arrested Development's Mae Whitman plays uh, the president's daughter. Fireflies, Adam Baldwin was a U.S. Air Force uh, major. Harry Kanye Jr., a friend of Will Smith that needs a pretty quick end, but he has a good co comic relief. And I know you're going to like this one, Joel. Frank Welker, who voices Megatron and the Transformers cartoons and everything, he's the vocal effects for the aliens in this movie. You know, I, I wondered when he, when he went in to audition, he was like, yes, I've, I've spent years cutting my teeth on kids' animations and now I can finally go to the big leagues, big budget motion picture, dramatic, you know, really serious stuff. Nope, we're gonna go. have we're gonna have you make a couple clicks and uh, <laughs> other gravelly noises, and and please blow up through all, all the American cities. I guess he wanted a paycheck. Yeah, when he got it, uh, because this movie was the highest grossing film of 1996, and at least according to some statistics, the 55th highest of all time, the first to even use a Super Bowl ad to market 
uh, it's for its marketing campaign. So it was just like War Games and Peacemaker, uh, two other movies that we did on this podcast. It was screened for the White House and the um, including White House staff and Bill Clinton. And after watching the movie, Hillary Clinton said, quote, well, looks like Bill's got to get his pilot's license. Because the president in the movie was pretty popular, a former, a former Gulf War pilot. I guess that, that was how they wanted to be able to run for re-election. But also the other side of the aisle, uh, GOP presidential nominee Bob Dole tried to jump on the movie's popularity as well on the campaign trail. And he said, quote, For far too long, President Clinton's economic policies have hovered like an alien ship over the American economy, blowing away growth and opportunity. In 1996, America strikes back. So I, I don't know if that was a campaign commercial or I just— I don't know why the American people didn't look at Bob Dole and think he's the Will Smith that America needs. <laughs> Um, and as we all know, it spawned a host of other disaster movies. Every movie afterwards that was somewhat similar would try to recreate the famous scenes that are in this film. And it's got a 61% on Rotten Tomatoes, which, you know, it's not too bad. Critics liked it as a, as a summer blockbuster but mocked its plot and writing. But even Roger Ebert gave it two and a half stars. He said he, quote, kind of liked it, but thought that the creature and ship design were retreads of movies and other stories that have been put out since the 1940s. It's had a video game, radio play, books, and other things that are based on the movie. And I can confirm that the video game is one of the worst games I've ever played. But we're not talking about the video game. We're not talking about anything else. We're not even going to talk too much about the sequel, which just came out this year, 20 years later. One of the larger gaps between movie and sequel um, that had ever been done. But the, it made quite a bit of money. It made over uh, $817 million worldwide over on a $75 million budget. The first movie. Yep, the first one did. The uh, second one, not so hot. But it, it did pretty well. And funnily enough, uh, much like Failsafe, the Pentagon pulled its support for the movie when they wouldn't remove the references to Area 51. Kind of a sensitive subject. So even though this was screened in the White House, uh, it had an interesting connection to, to the military. It's not like a Michael Bay movie where he makes the military look good, so they give him all the cool hardware and all the cool access to the cool sets. But that's enough of that. Let's, uh, let's get into the film. Joel, lead us away on the plot as you normally do. Well, this is a funny uh, intro to a movie where we have literal foreshadowing of the intimidating <laughs> menace of an alien ship where the movie starts off with a shot of the moon. A uh, classic shot that we're all used to before a giant shadow looms over uh, essentially where Americans first stepped in, and placed a flag and, and plaque. Uh, but we don't exactly know what's causing that shadow. What's this – kind of you get a sense of menace and dread uh, that's, that's getting closer and closer to the earth. Uh, down below on earth, you start to see various – Aspects of the machinery of science and the military start to pick up uh, signals from outer space. We see everything from a military submarine uh, come up from uh, the ocean starting to detect signals. Then we get the stereotypical like three guys in a random satellite bunker somewhere that, you know, are on their smoke break or drinking break. And then they, uh, I don't know, do you take a drinking break? Maybe not. Maybe in the bunker you do. All of a sudden, start to detect signals, and they're trying to figure it out. They start to sense that there's these pieces that are moving toward Earth, that some kind of mass. At first, they think it might be a meteor, but then they start to realize, well, hold on. This mass that's coming at the Earth is actually starting to slow down. Much like uh, a nuclear weapon that fires up, and it's a murdered weapon, breaks into small pieces, and starts to come back to Earth. That's probably not what they were going for, but again, I can't shut this part of my brain off. 
Now, as it starts to slow down, they're, you know, watching it very closely because they start to say, wait a minute, this this seems very intentional and not just a, a piece of large rock. But then it just doesn't become or stay one piece, but it actually bro- breaks uh, into about, I think, nearly 30 different pieces. Yep. And they start making their way towards Earth and spreading out across the Earth, actually. Uh, and the, the different pieces... Uh, end up actually heading towards various large cities like New York, Washington, D.C., other international destinations. And not before that, the Secretary of Defense for the U.S. makes a recommendation to the president. Why don't we just load up a couple ICBMs with some big old nukes and and blow it out of the sky? Which is, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, I'm going to save most of this talk for when we do Armageddon or one of these other asteroid movies. But there is a real debate in policy communities about how to use uh, nuclear weapons to uh, deal with asteroids. Whether you use a nuclear bomb on the surface of the asteroid, that's enough. If you would drill inside of the asteroid and blow it up to break it into smaller pieces, a la Armageddon. Or if you put a bunch of nukes like near the asteroid and fire them all at the same time and push them away. These are all fascinating pieces of discussion that I'm sure we'll get to uh, at a certain point. But I just want to point out, too, that ICBMs are not incredibly effective against targets in space because they follow a ballistic path. They're essentially you launch them into space and they follow a, a set trajectory to hit a target that's stationary. You know, the Earth's moving, but it's still largely stationary. A moving target like that, you really can't hit with an ICBM. You would need a cruise missile or some sort of missile with a guidance system that's a little more advanced. But again, probably just nitpicking a little bit this movie. But let's keep going. I was going to say, you're getting a little super critical there, Tim. Uh, That's the name of the podcast. Let's keep going. So we have these large pieces, which once they kind of show themselves to the world, once they, they literally come out of the clouds over top these cities... We clearly understand now at this point, you know, humankind has discovered finally that we are no longer alone, that there is intelligent life. But they don't really do anything. Yeah, people are kind of excited about it. Giant ships hovering over. People are kind of out and about, kind of celebrating. Hey, this is a cool thing. Let's go say hi. Almost like New New Year's Eve. Exactly. Um, But we don't exactly know what's going on. We don't know except for one person. And that is Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum. You know, when he wasn't uh, helping promote apartments.com, <laughs> he was a tech savvy media company guy, kind of mid-level executive. That's the sense we get from uh, from the movie. So he's working for a media company. I just like to point out that I, I don't think you could get away with this today because computers have become so ubiquitous. But I feel like at that point, he was just kind of described as this kind of computer guy at the company who is smart. And computers, I feel, were so mysterious at that point where all you had to do is flash a couple of computer terms at the audience and show a computer and be like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know what this is. So he must be this really smart guy. The bar for techno babble is pretty low. Right, right, exactly. Now these days, you know, you got to be you got to be with it. The kids, you know, yep. they know what's going on. Well, he figures out there's some kind of signal that's being brought out. And that's maybe what's interfering with everyone's satellites because the, the media company's uh, satellites aren't working. So he decodes the signal and he realizes, oh, you know what? It's just going to fade out. Like, you know, within eight hours or so, it'll be fine. It'll just, it'll, it'll stop. And then once he realizes that it's an alien spaceship, the signal's not fading down. It's counting down. To what? A countdown? That can't be good. Checkmate. So this one character out of the entire world seems to have cracked this code because he works for Comcast or something. <laughs> um, that's not a paid endorsement. 
Uh, and fortunately, his estranged love interest is actually working for the White House. So he's able to basically infiltrate the White House by convincing his former wife. He borrows his dad's car and gets his dad in the, in the car from New York City all the way down to D.C. And fortunately, uh, it's one of those movies where everyone's trying to get out of a city. So the traffic's really bad going one direction, but everything's fine the other direction. Right. They don't open up both sides of the highway to get Maybe someone out. Maybe they got on the HOV. You know, maybe. maybe, but I will say in terms of I've read a lot of old civil defense manuals about how to evacuate cities in the event of an impending nuclear attack. You know, it was a Friday night. Civil defense manuals just seemed like good reading. Yeah, I had a, a, a glass of red wine. It was wonderful. Uh, but one of the things that they do say that for plans are that they would open up both lanes to go one direction, essentially out of the city. Someone dropped the ball on this one. There you go. So they're able to warn the president. They're able to inf literally infiltrate the White House, explain what's going on, just as they are about to convince the president um, that there is that there is a menace, there is a threat. It's not just a you know uh, Vulcan, we come in peace kind of moment. Uh, it's at that moment where the timer eventually counts down to zero, and we get some of the most famous iconic images of kind of modern cinema where. You have the giant circular structures, disc structures over top of New York, Washington, D.C., etc. Open up. It looks like they might have an elaborate light show for America. <laughs> Almost like Close Encounters of the Third Kind where they open up the spaceship and lights come out and there's a little light musical display. Right. You know, a prog rock uh, yeah. you know, duet or something. But instead you have basically what look like nuclear explosions but from this uh, – primary energy weapon that comes from the center of each disc straight down like a giant laser destroying the empire state building much of new york uh we have one that uh destroys the white house mm -hmm. fortunately the president and his key staff have been able to get out of the white house probably on, the interns went, probably didn't make it uh, but, oh you know, yeah they're just interns. interns yeah um so you, some of the key characters of the movie are able to escape but likely hundreds of thousands if not millions of people are killed in the span of a couple minutes across the world, America, the world, is under attack. I want to interject two things here real quick. One, one of my, my – I had a cousin at the time who worked in one of the buildings in Los Angeles, the one get that gets hit first. It's like a – obviously a skyscraper and it's got a big round uh, helicopter pad on the top. It's one of the cooler looking buildings, but my cousin worked on the, near the top of that building. So she used to like to brag about how it was the first My building destroyed. got destroyed first. Um, but the th crazy thing about this movie is, is that the president and his family and David Levinson, Jeff Goldblum's character and everything, they get on a helicopter and they go to Dulles. And as they get to Dulles, Air Force One is taking off and the explosion from D.C. is just – is reached so far, D.C. to Dulles uh, Airport, the Dallas International Airport, which is 25 miles west of D.C. So this – I don't know if they Advanced just throw the numbers off here. Tim. That's a crazy big explosion, a 25-mile arena of destruction. That's a that's pretty big, and also I don't understand why in the movie they clearly say Dulles. Why isn't Air Force One at Andrews Air Force Base is where it normally is based out of? But I, don't, I think just a little, we're willing to give a little bit of little bit of poetic license on this front. But I think the imagery of the cities being destroyed is interesting to me because it looks a lot of like what the public might have seen when you have these fake towns that have been built up near a nuclear test site. 
when we used to do atmospheric testing, we would basically build these survival towns and to see what would a nuclear bomb do to knock over buildings, blow stuff up. So you, you, you can look on YouTube and I'll post some of these things in the show notes of basically buildings being knocked over. It looks a lot like that, uh, seeing cars flipping and flying into the air. It's not exactly what a nuclear bomb would look like because there's no shockwave in this one. It's basically just like a rolling fireball um, that Will Smith's wife and son and their dog are able to escape from by hiding in a tunnel. I think it's, I don't think that imagery was, um, is a, a coincidence. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. But uh, one one more note here is that Fox Studios, when they were told that uh, the director wanted to blow up D.C., and specifically the White House, they were a little bit leery about that. They weren't sure how they were going to do that. And this is a quote from uh, Emmerich uh, about his exchange with those with the Fox executives. He says, so you want to – the the Fox executives like, so you want to blow up the White House? Then the director says, yeah, everyone is frustrated with politics right now. They'll cheer it. Fox execs say, but the White House? Uh, well, yeah, we would agree with you if it was a terrorist doing it, but hey, it's space aliens. And that's supposedly what worked and got them the movie. You can never go wrong blaming aliens or some Marvel villain. So, mm-hmm. so they, the president, his key staff, so Goldblum's character and uh, his, his uh, ex-wife, they're Secretary, able to escape. Secretary of Defense, all that. Yep, the, the key cabinet folks. Uh, they're able to escape. Where do they go? Of course, they go to Area 51. Because, you know, if you're in an Aliens movie, you got to go to Area 51. And much like how Harry Truman was surprised to learn that we had invented the nuclear bomb, he was told that, uh, you know, once he became president after FDR died, it was like a little bit of, oh, yeah, by the way, we have this incredible destructive weapon. Uh, President Whitmore in this movie didn't even think Air Force One existed, but the Secretary of Defense has to go, uh, actually, Mr. President, it does exist. But so, so when before they head over to Area 51, um, the Secretary of Defense recommends to the president, look, our cities are destroyed, we're under attack, let's nuke the heck out of them. Which starts like a big fight between the Secretary of Defense and Jeff Goldblum's character who says we can't nuke them because if we fire a missile, the rest of the world's going to fire a missile, there'll be nuclear winter, and we'll never be able to survive. Which is interesting terminology that the whole breaking the nuclear firewall, once the first person does it, it's no longer a taboo everyone's gonna everyone's gonna go around doing it and it's at this point i was wondering why isn't someone going who do you work for <laughs> and i'll be like oh i'm just the comcast guy and they'll be like all right you make salient points about uh, nuclear policy in our future uh, existence as a species well he's wearing glasses so that's very convincing and he was talking about computers and you know discs and yep. windows 95 <laughs> uh but i did think it was funny that there's no discussion about why china Russia, the United Kingdom, France, uh, why none of them fired nuclear weapons at the cities destroying spaceships. Kind you of figure someone would have it done it. It was the mid-90s. You hmm. know? We, we all made a lot of mistakes in the mid-90s. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Um, so the key characters, they're at Area 51 trying to figure out what their next move is. Obviously, they plan a counterattack. Mm-hmm. They but take- just with conventional stuff. Right, exactly. Just conventional. So they take what forces they can communicate with, what folks they can uh, coordinate with, uh, and they plan a traditional air attack with, you know, fighter jets. Enter Will Smith's character, who with Harry Connick Jr., I was kind of wondering if they'd have like piano playing in his cockpit as they're like flying (laughs) into battle or anything. Um, You know, just a little solo. Uh, Engage 
uh, one of the large discs because if it's 15 miles wide, why not just have a traditional fighter go after it? Because obviously that seems like it could blow it up, uh, take it down. But as they're approaching the giant spacecraft to attack it, lo and behold, they find that there's actually a giant force field covering the entire disc, uh, making their entire force basically uh, moot and useless against them. In addition to the force field, they send out a bunch of fighters, the aliens, and so we get to see the first sense of individual uh, aliens, you know, piloting these aircrafts. Uh, at least uh, seemingly. In the ensuing battle, unfortunately, because there were so many alien aircrafts, uh, the alien the alien force is able to repel the American forces. We don't really see any other international um, countries that are also involved, so it's pretty much a, a U.S.-led invasion. At the end of the attack, we find that the only uh, a survivor that we're aware of is actually Will Smith's character, Stephen Hiller, who's actually able to survive by heading into the Grand Canyon, luring one or two of the, the alien fighter jets, for lack of a better term. Oh, yeah. I think you're referring to Alien Jerry. Yeah, yeah let's, he's, just, let's he's, just call him Alien Jerry. He's pretty easily tricked. Yeah. Yep, yep, Jerry. Kind of an idiot. So uh, Hiller, Will Smith's character, is able to basically subdue the, the alien, uh, literally punches him in the <laughs> face, knocks him unconscious, has another iconic moment. Welcome to Earth. All of a sudden, an international star is born. Will Smith takes over Hollywood for the next 20 years. He's able to get the alien to Area 51, where the president proceeds to interrogate the alien who has survived. Um, it's at that point, which I find is probably the quickest, like, fast forward of Hollywood mm -hmm. magic to kind of literally, not literally, to completely set the scene for the plot line where in a 30-second uh, moment of telepathic connection, the president gets visions of basically everything that's going on where we learn the aliens are this locust-like species that basically moves from planet to planet, taking up natural resources, killing anything in its path, and then moving on to the next planet. They find that they have no intention of peacefully resolving this dispute with mankind, uh, and it's at that point where the president realizes they can only fight back, in which he replies... Snook the bastards. So, a squadron of B-2 Spirit stealth bombers fly in an attack pattern against an alien ship hovering above Houston, Texas. And a pretty big group of the stealth fighters, but I guess they assumed that the aliens had radar, so maybe it's not a whole... The whole stealth elements may not as important here. Um, but I'm, I'm certainly glad that this movie didn't have the president have a nuclear football or the nuclear suitcase and push a red button. It's like one of the first movies I think we've done that actually shows somewhat what command and control would look like. President right. gives the author authorization and then the national command authority does its work. Um, I'm not, I'm a little bit surprised why they didn't go with an ICBM or some kind of sub launch missile, but that movie looks cool when you have the, the B2 bombers flying in at night. And I will say, because I had this thought when I first saw the movie and even when I was rehashing the movie with Tim and, and doing some of the, the research, why was this over Houston? You know, I think of like the big cities, you've got your New York, your DC, maybe Boston or something like that. I did a little research. 
Houston is the fifth largest metropolitan region uh, and one of the largest in the southern United States. So, because I was thinking, if you only have 30 of these discs across the entire globe, Mm -hmm. why would you be over Houston? No hate for Houston or Texas, but I was just curious. But I learned it's actually one of the largest uh, population centers in the United States. I I just think they don't like the Houston Rockets. That's kind of my opinion. Right. They just hate Texas, I guess. So, they proceed to try to nuke them. Unfortunately, the force field is still there. No change. That's a strong force field right there. Yep. President says, may our children forgive us right before the the nuke gets launched. And uh, probably the most anticlimactic nuclear weapons attack in the history of cinema, perhaps. Pretty much. Well, pretty much. Well, he says when he he hopes that his children forgive him. I don't know if he was talking about the decision to nuke Houston or the technical errors in the movie. Uh, I would apologize to my grandchildren for this one because the B-2 bomber – is shown in the movie to basically launch a cruise missile. These are missiles that drop out of the bottom of an airplane, launch and fire like a Sidewinder missile or one of these other things from an attack jet. Well, the B-2 bomber doesn't have cruise missiles. Uh, Only the next generation of stealth bombers that is reported to have what they recall a long-range standoff missile. But it doesn't have uh, – the B-2 doesn't have a, any sort of cruise missile like that. It looks a little bit like an ALCM, which is an air launch cruise missile. And according to my notes, a W-80 warhead, which has a 200 uh, kiloton yield. So I, I'm willing to let this one slide So we're bit. in the middle of a dramatic moment in the film. Yep. We're in the theaters, although I had never actually saw this movie in the theaters. It was on VHS. Yep. That kind of dates it. Uh, everyone's holding their breath waiting for the nuclear bomb to go off. And then, in the quiet tension of the scene, in the back row of the movie theater, all of a sudden you hear Tim, That's wrong! (laughs) Yep. uh, Even sixth grade... Super critical, folks. Even sixth grade Tim had a problem with this. Uh, But not just me. Not just me. Uh, A senior systems engineer slash rocket scientist at Tetra Tech in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, named Robert Kennedy. I think just... I'm not related to the other one. It was you and Robert. Yep. Uh, Robert Kennedy uh, wrote on a, one of his blogs about how ineffective the W-80 warhead would have been against an alien ship of that size, even if it didn't have the shield working. Did he have a blog in 1996? I hope so. Wow. Uh, well, impressive. I don't know if he had a blog, but later on, he something drove him, much as I'm driven to yell on a podcast, drove him to put words on the internet. And his argument was that detonating the 200 kiloton bomb on the surface of that ship that size would do little to actually crater the hull. Mostly because of the nature of the ship, the fact that it's this big disc, it would just spread out the shockwave and the nuclear blast over a wide area and wouldn't concentrate damage all too much. He predicted that even if every single warhead in the world's arsenal which is about 10,000 megatons, were fired at the exact same spot on the ship, it would only destroy less than two cubic miles, less than one-tenth of one of those ships. So that wouldn't really do so much. So he hates America, basically. <laughs> That's what you're saying. He, he thinks he thinks his military strategy, this particular one, wasn't so effective. <laughs> Although he did think there would be some kind of EMP effect if, depending on what the hole was made out of. It was, if it was metallic and uh, conductive to gamma radiation, it would have done some sort of electromagnetic pulse uh, effect on the ship's electronics, uh, but, not, but not so much uh, on the actual blast effects. But... The novelization of this movie, which I haven't read, but I read about it on the internet, does... They made it into a novel. They made it into a novel. Um, 
You can get it at your library. I think it was on Oprah's book list. But the novelization gets actually pretty dark about the use of nuclear weapons. In this scene in particular, the president, after the failed attack, considers using nuclear weapons on the Earth itself to make the planet less habitable for the aliens, so they'll just leave. And I'll quote, The failure to inflict any damage on the alien ship convinced him that there was no way to prevent them from landing. In light of what just happened in Houston, it seems it is now time to rethink the strategy of fighting the aliens and time to begin organizing ways to resist them once they begin their invasion. The only logical course the of action Whitmore could conceive was to wait for them to establish their cities, then blow the world to smithereens. Mankind was going to be exterminated, he knew, without mercy. If we are lucky, he told himself, we might just be able to take them down with us. That that's pretty intense, Tim. Yeah, a lot a lot should, different than should, the. You, could, you should consider a a career in that. Some dramatic reading. Some yeah, mm-hmm. audible.com. Uh, you have my contact information. Can but, I do the the thunder? The, yeah. yeah. Or opening in the creaky door. <laughs> Sorry. Yep. Well, well uh, I'm distracting. The point is, is that nuclear weapons would not be very effective against the ship. But it was either way, it was not very effective. What's the next plan, Joel? What are what's our next steps here? We just threw our most sophisticated weaponry known to mankind at the first instance of non-mankind warfare, and nothing happened. So what are we gonna do? Well, I guess we gotta go to the computer nerd. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum says, "Wait a minute, these folks—they're coordinating with their uh, with our satellites, our radio signals. Uh, something about you know gigahertz and laptops <laughs> and." computers and oh he's got glasses so he knows what he's doing he gets the idea of course we're going to give him a computer virus because if we can do that maybe we can disable their force field and then maybe we have a shot to try to attack the ships again sounds like a good plan to me so we need a computer virus jeff goldblum check we need a way to actually deliver the virus well will smith's character great fighter pilot and we find out in area 51 that they actually have one of the recovered um, spacecraft from the aliens. From Roswell, no less. From Roswell, of course. Crash landing at Roswell. Although one question I will have plot-wise is those individual ships were clearly from a larger ship that brought them there. And so I'm wondering, Mm. does that mean that one of those larger disks actually came by the Earth and we completely missed it? Because I doubt one of those individual ships would have come. But that's a minor point. I'm being super critical. I'm okay uh, putting a pin in that. Say that for your super critical alien invasion podcast. Right. The follow-up podcast. So we've got a computer virus from Jeff Goldblum. Uh And we have a ship piloted by Will Smith. They head on back to the mothership, which is an even bigger ship that's out in space. Yep. The, their ship is loaded with a tactical nuclear weapon, is what Robert Loja's character says. It's loaded with a tactical nuclear weapon, which I always thought was kind of funny. If it's just going to be on a ship and it doesn't really matter that it's launched from missile, why don't go for the big boys? We'll do a big megaton bomb. Tactical nuclear weapons are sub-kiloton. They're small weapons. These are bunker buster weapons. These are things you blow up tank battalions with, not giant alien motherships. I have an answer for that, though. Mm-hmm. So if you remember in the movie, they hide the missile in kind of a, a sphere uh, structure. Uh, Conveniently, the alien ships also have these things hanging out on the end that can just perfectly encapsulate a nuclear weapon. Like a, like a hidden sidewinder missile type. Right, thing. exactly. So... How much how much bigger would those more powerful weapons have been? Uh, they, it might have been harder to fit it within that 
that same space, they right? It could be, although we've also we have thermonuclear bombs that are that are in the megaton range that are that could have maybe fit inside of uh well definitely could have fit inside the spaceship. So the question is whether or not Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith would consider this a suicide mission. Which seems to me, if you're trying to talk about saving the world, you volunteer for a suicide mission. I don't know about you, but the idea of trying to get them out so you fire a missile and then get out of there, I guess that was the plan. I can see that, although I certainly you would be you wouldn't be a tactical nuclear weapon. You would just be a, a standard missile size. We have cruise missiles that are that carry you know two three hundred kilotons uh, and not a tactical nuclear weapon. This that term is it sounds really cool. But it means small nuclear weapon to destroy a mothership, which is like 70 times larger. I mean, like hundreds of times larger than these uh, city destroying smaller disks. So they're in the ship. They're uploading the virus. They have the nuke literally kind of in their in their back pocket ready to use. It's at that point, I think, where they if I remember correctly, they you know, they're waiting for the virus to take effect. They realize like they're probably not going to be able to get away because the, the, the ship is more to, to them, the, yeah. the ship. And so uh, Goldblum and, and uh, Will Smith, they they share these kind of victory cigars that Will Smith had gotten from his friend Harry Connick Jr. <laughs> earlier in the movie. And they, you know, they fire them up and they're smoking cigars and basically saying, oh, you know, this is it. We'll take it to them. But, you know, it's lights out for us, essentially. The virus finishes getting uploaded. All of a sudden, the aliens start to realize, wait, something's going on because we just got hacked by a Windows 95 or, oh, no, it was MacBook, right? A PowerBook. PowerBook, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, it's got to be accurate here. And thankfully, when they do that, uh, and they also fire, fire the, the missile, missile yeah. into the straight into the alien in his little control pod that's controlling the ship anchoring. Which is sad. I don't know if that's like the central hub of the of the spaceship. I think it's just some guy. It's just oh, probably yeah, some I, low yeah. level alien who's just like yeah. I'm, this is just a job. For it's me. the random stormtrooper. Maybe you know, like they do with Star Wars, where they have the fan fiction. Mm -hmm. I almost wonder is there a YouTube video out there of like that guy. You know, going to work. It's like his third day on the job, maybe. Maybe he's, he's a like, friend, maybe he's a friend of Alien Jerry. He's like trying to reach Alien right. Jerry maybe on cousins. his cell phone. Yeah. Maybe they're cousins. Like, I haven't cousin. heard from Jerry. What's going on? Where's Are you Jerry? Into your phone? Right. And he's just going to work, and he's very emotional, and he doesn't know what's going on, and can't find him. And then, lo and behold, it's these two random guys that are shooting a missile at him, and he's dead. They wave. They shoot a missile. Right. It Actually, it's funny enough, um, the missile that gets fired, they put it on a 30-second timer, which sounds a little bit ridic ridiculous. But as we talked about in some of the previous uh, episodes on this podcast, that's actually a procedure known as a lay-down delivery. It's normally done with guidance bombs, not missiles. These are bombs that are dropped from airplanes. Sometimes they have parachutes that slow the descent and they land on the ground. And usually these are used against submarine bases because they will land on the submarine base. They give time for the, the airplanes that delivered them to get out. And then they, get, then they explode so that they make sure that they land exactly where they want to go to. And it's also a perfect amount for dramatic Tension. Exactly. Uh, although I don't really understand why the military knew ahead of time that the missile would it would basically penetrate wherever they were going to fire it because it like fires through that alien central console and lands behind the alien. Um, don't understand why they would have tried to make it penetrate as opposed to what it normally would have done, which is just explode on the surface of whatever it blew up. But anyways, that's I guess that's being a little nitpicky. If I really wanted to get super nitpicky, Will Smith says before they leave that the 
the control box that the Robert Lozier's character shows him says, oh yeah, that's just like the a, the uh, the Amram launch pad on a stealth. Well, I don't understand what he's really talking about well. because, well, <laughs> the stealth bombers don't have Amram launch because they don't fire cruise missiles is what these are. That's what we refer to as an advanced medium range air-to-air missile. Stealth bombers don't do air-to-air missiles because they don't engage in dogfighting. They blow stuff up. Hmm. Maybe he's referring to a, a stealth jet fighter which is what he normally flew, those F-18s. But the F-22 was a stealth fighter, but didn't exist in 1996. <sighs> Maybe I'm just getting a little bit crazy. The only stealth well, aircraft... Well, as far as we knew, it yeah, didn't exist in 1996. That is true. It could have been a secret thing. Well, the one that we did have was the F-117 uh, Nighthawk and the B-2 Spirit Bomber. Those were our two big stealth aircraft, but none of them had this type of equipment. But again, Will Smith... Uh, Apparently knows everything. He can fly uh, F-18. Will Smith is Will Smith, a, my friend. Well, he can fly an F-18. He can fly an alien spacecraft. At one point, he, he steals a helicopter. I guess he just knows pretty much how to fly everything. I mean, he's pretty good. He's yeah. Will Smith. So so they're able to get away by disabling the anchoring system. The, the ship kind of falls, and thankfully, it just kind of hovers away. And then they proceed to jet straight for the exit door. While they're being chased by a couple of random fighters, you would while think the, that... Yep, while the door is closing. If they knew uh, humans were inside, you'd think they'd get a larger response than three <laughs> little fighter... I'm going to call them fighter jets because I don't know what else to call them. Fighter things. They're able to get out just as the doors literally are closing. And then a couple of seconds later, we have an epic, what we think to be a nuclear explosion in space with a beautiful blue ball of fire. <laughs> Looks just something. like the Death Star blow it up. Right, exactly. And then with we can kind of fast forward through the rest of this. We have the main mothership uh, completely destroyed. The force fields are disabled on each of the disks over the various cities. Cut to the people around Area 51 right before the disk is able to power up and destroy Area 51 and presumably all the other cities that the other disks are attacking. The Americans and other uh, forces of mankind are able to essentially target the main power primary weapon in the discs and they realize if they blow up the weapon just as it's powering up creates this chain reaction that basically if it doesn't completely destroy it permanently disables each uh, of the discs and they come raining down in a ball of fire to which uh everyone makes these references of the equivalent of fireworks on july 4th when mm -hmm. all of the alien ships are crash landing will smith and jeff goldblum <sighs> have crash landed on earth we've president saved goes out and humanity. meets them Everyone hugs and everything Everything is great. Let's get a little nitpicky about a few of those things before we move on to some more substantive discussion. The whole mothership attack scene is, is, is fascinating because let's set the stage real quick about how big this mothership that Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum explode. According to the, uh, I'm sure, completely accurate Independence Day Wikipedia, this ship is 800 kilometers or 500 miles long. Now, to give you the best comparison I can imagine... The, the great state of Wilmington, Delaware is 96 miles long. So the mothership is longer than five Delawares. Heck, it's even taller than four Delawares. So if you imagine a five by four Delaware size ship, that gives you a sense of how big uh, this mothership is. And it's apparently can hold 86 city destroying ships, which are each 0.2 Delawares long give or take a Wilmington. This uh, our rocket scientist friend, Robert Kennedy, uh, didn't think that any kind of H-bomb in the world's arsenal could blow up a ship that size. He estimated it would take 20 
trillion megatons to vaporize the ship. And again, we have 10,000 megatons in total. For a warhead that big, it would need to be 4,000 yards in diameter and 11,000 yards long. I assume some kind of chain reaction got started. But even then, the destruction of that mothership, that, that blast that would have happened if you blew it up, would have, been, in, in, which is roughly around, I think, the, a lunar orbit, would have released 3 billion megatons of heat and radiation, basically the equivalent of 30 explosions that they think killed the dinosaurs. All of that would end all life as you know it because it would be crashing right towards Earth. So, you know. Well, that's a fitting spectacle for a movie about, you know, mankind being wiped out by aliens. No? It could be. It could be. Well, Seems like there's a sequel to this movie, so we all survive somehow. Um, so we kind of, I guess, going to have to ignore that part. But whatever kind of big explosion you would have needed to blow up the ship would have also resulted in a pretty big uh, explosion elsewhere, or at least a lot of debris uh, landing down on Earth. All right, so let's take a quick break here uh, before we move on to some more nitpicking of the movie. We played a game when we did the failsafe episode, episode 9, where Joel and our guest took turns picking out whether or not the name of this thing that I said was a nuclear weapon delivery system or a Hasbro line transformer toy. Along those similar lines, in this movie, Joel, uh, we didn't talk about this in the plot yet because we're saving it for here. There's this famous scene where Bill Pullman's character, the president, uh, Whitmore, gives a speech rallying his pilots against the alien forces. It's an iconic scene in American history, let alone movie history, where he declares, We're fighting for our right to live, to exist. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night, we will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. And uh, pretty much every single action movie since then has tried to recreate this particular moment. And I'm sure a lot of real-life presidents have even tried to create that kind of epic speech and buzz afterwards. With that in mind, I think it's time to play a round of the classic game. Is this line of dialogue from a movie president or a real president? Let's do a quick easy one. Joel, you go first. Question number one. And just to make it fair, I have a computer program here that's going to read out my quotes uh, with a robot voice so that you can't understand. Would you like to play a game of chess? <laughs> exactly. So that way you can't uh, hear the inflection or anything. Everything's going to be neutral. Do I get bonus points if I can name the movie? Uh, I will give you a kudos. <laughs> All right, I'll take it. <laughs> All right, here we go. First one to Joel. This is just the test easy one. Never again will I allow our political self-interests to deter us from doing what we know to be morally right. Atrocity and terror are not political weapons, and to those who would use them, your day is over we will never negotiate. We will no longer tolerate and we will no longer be afraid it's your turn to be afraid. Joel, movie president or real president? That's a good one, Tim. Uh, that is a movie president. Uh, Harrison Ford in Air Force One, who personally I would probably put as number two behind Jed Bartlett. Bill Pullman's good, but, you know, get off my plane, classic. That is correct. Air Force One, 1997. Jennifer. 
It's your turn here. Is this okay. quote from a real president or a movie president? Here you go. Like the struggles of the last century, our war on terror is, above all, a struggle for freedom and liberty we're fighting for the cause of humanity against those who seek to impose the darkness of tyranny and terror upon the entire world. So what was that? Movie president or real president? I think that was a real president. Any guess on which one? Um, George W. Bush. Yep, that's a, a George W. Bush speech on terrorism in 2006. I did detect a little southern drawl from Texas. <laughs> well, so. according to this, this is Daniel from the UK speaking. Um, but maybe they have, maybe they come out the same when it's computer terms. All right, guys, so it's it's tied up one to one. But let's get real, Joel. Great responsibilities have been placed upon us by the swift movement of events. I'm gonna say a real president? Question mark. It is a real president. It is Harry Truman's ah. speech uh, declaring the Truman Doctrine in 1947. Jennifer, you ready for this one? I'm ready. Through all the chaos that is our history, through all of the wrongs and the discord, all the pain and suffering, all our time, there is one thing that has nourished our souls, elevated our species above its origins. That is our courage. All right, Jennifer, movie president or real president? I think that was a movie president. But you have no idea. What movie was that from? I have no idea. Well, it is a movie president. It's the unnamed president in Armageddon, 1998. I have actually seen that movie, but that was probably 15 years ago. And I I don't remember. I didn't get that right because I knew the movie. Okay, well, you wait for our Armageddon episode and you'll have to listen to us <laughs> talk about it some more. All right, Joel, it's still tied up. Two to two. Next one. Question three. It can't be long now, Ezekiel says that fire and brimstone will be rained upon the enemies of God's people. That must mean that they'll be destroyed by nuclear weapons. We may be the generation that sees Armageddon. That sounds pretty epic. Um, movie president? That is real president. Oh. That is President Ronald Reagan in 1971 and 1980 talking about Armageddon by nuclear weapons. Hmm. He had a he had a pretty good speechwriter, I guess. All right, Jennifer, ready for this one? I'm ready to take the lead. <laughs> the Bible calls this day Armageddon, the end of all things. But for the first time in the history of the planet, a species has the technology to prevent its own extinction. Movie president, real president. That sounds very much like it goes with the last one. So I'm going to say that that was also Reagan and was also a real president. That is a movie president oh, from wow. the movie Armageddon again. <laughs> really need to catch up on your on your uh, Armageddon, Jennifer. <laughs> so still tied, two to two. Question number four. Tricky, tricky. Mankind must put an end to war, or war will put an end to mankind. Joel, movie president, real president. That sounds like something Wilson might have said if he was talking about the League of Nations. So I'm going to say real president without a question mark and just double down. It was a real president. I wish I could give you negative points because that was John F. Kennedy oh. saying how we need All to right. end war. War will put an end to mankind. But still, that's not the game. So you get the point. Three to two. Jennifer? Cities fall, but they are rebuilt. Heroes die, but they are remembered. We honor them with every brick we lay. With every field we sow, with every child we comfort, and then teach what we have been re-given our planet, our home for now. 
Let's just begin. Jennifer, movie president, real president. Um, I I think that was a movie president. But do you know which movie? I do not. Joel does. <laughs> well, I, I think I I just felt Morgan Freeman saying this. You are correct. <laughs> and movie is pretty sure Deep Impact when it's at the end of the movie. The capital is behind them, completely torn up and, and beaten up, but they survived. That is correct. Yeah. You, get, you get your kudos, but Jennifer gets the point. All right, all right. Deep Impact, 1998. That does sound like Morgan Freeman would have said that. Much better than Armageddon. Just going <laughs> to say that now. All right. Well, we are still locked in a tight one, three to three. Now we're on to round number five. Joel, here we go. America isn't easy. America is advanced citizenship. You've got to want it bad, cause it's gonna put up a fight. Uh, it sounds a little silly, so I'm gonna go with movie president. But what movie? You gotta want it bad. Should have had bonus. I don't know. For a second, I was thinking of like Starship Troopers or something, but uh, uh, I'm gonna start. I'm I'm instituting a bonus point starting now. So if you're able to get the name of the movie, if you we can do the whether or not it's a movie or a reel, that's one point. Bonus, second bonus point is you can name the thing. All right. Give me a hint. It is a non-French film. All right. Progress. progress. It, is not a, it is not a silent film. So who do you got? Uh, gotta put up a fight. I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. Time's up. You get one point for the fact that it's a movie president, but it's President Andrew Shepard, Michael Douglas's character in The American President, 1995. Uh. Joel has four. Jennifer's got three. Jennifer, you ready? I'm ready. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected. And hand it on for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. I I think that was a real president. But which one? I do not know. You want to take a swing? There's only been 44 of them. (laughs) Coolidge. (laughs) Well, we've had a Reagan and a Kennedy. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with Reagan again. Boom! Fillmore. Oh, not Fillmore, not Coolidge, but Ronald Reagan in 1961. Jennifer has taken the lead, five to four. Round number five. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. So at first I was thinking, I'm pretty sure this is Donald Trump at Gettysburg. <laughs> but then I thought about it a little more, and then I heard the accent. Pretty sure it was Abraham Lincoln. Good old British Gettysburg. Abe. That is correct. Real it president. is Abraham Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address. Tried to hide that one a little bit. I guess I didn't do so good. Jennifer? History prefers legends to men. It prefers nobility to brutality. Soaring speeches to quiet deeds. History remembers the battle, it forgets the blood. However, history remembers me, if it remembers me at all. It shall only remember a fraction of the truth. 
I'm going to say a real president. That is incorrect. Joel, want to go in for the steal? Not really, but want to check a guess at that one? I almost wanted to say it was from a movie president in like Frost Nixon playing a real president, Richard Nixon. Well, it was a trick question. It was Abraham Lincoln in the movie Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. (laughs) So... No can, po- can I lodge an, an official protest at yes. that question? I am the arbitrator, and I have denied it. We could go back to Armageddon, Jen. You know, <laughs> it's either this or that. So it's now t- uh, Joel actually has a lead of six to five. Let's move on to round number six. Joel? More than any time in recent history, America's destiny is not of our own choosing. We did not seek nor did we provoke an assault on our freedom and our way of life. We did not expect nor did we invite a confrontation with evil, yet the true measure of a people's strength is how they rise to master that moment when it does arrive. Pretty sure that's a real president after Pearl Harbor, so it could also be the quote from the movie Pearl Harbor, but I'm pretty sure it's from a real president. Incorrect. That is President Josiah Bartlett, played by Martin Sheen in a famous West Wing episode in early 2002. Tim, Tim, always bringing it. I think this is our one of our favorite episodes. This is uh, 20 Hours in America. Uh, so Joel does nothing to advance the lead. And now it's Jennifer's turn. <laughs> you could have just said incorrect. He said has done nothing to advance the lead. Jennifer, why don't, you see, why don't you see what you can do? I'm going to go out there. And I'm going to take the oath of office. I'm going to run this government. And if some Islamic nations can't tolerate a female president, then I promise you, it will be more their problem than mine. Movie president, real president. That has to be a movie president. It is correct. Can you can you name where it's from? Uh, I have no idea. Well, not really a movie, but it's uh, President Mackenzie Allen, played by Gina Davis, oh, in Command Commander in Chief in 2005. So you I get. W- I watched the first couple episodes of that, and I liked it. We must have missed that one scene yeah. then. It must have been getting a soda then. Uh, so now it's tied up six to six. All right, round number seven to Joel. Nuclear science and all technology has no conscience of its own. Whether it will become a force for good or ill depends on man. Movie president or real president? Real president. Okay. Barack Obama. Half right. Real president, John F. Kennedy. It's Mm. from the We Chose to Go to the Moon speech. Had to fudge up a little bit because he actually says space science like nuclear science, but it works out just as well. 1962 speech. All right. All right. Uh, So now it's seven to six. Jennifer? Before I surrender the city, I will burn it to the ground. That's a movie president. But who? I I don't know. Well, you did get the half of it correct. It is a movie president. Kind of a trick question. It's both a movie president and a real president. It's President Andrew Jackson, played by Charleston Heston, in the 1958 movie The Buccaneer. I guess he's talking about, I think, the Battle of New Orleans. So, Jennifer gets one point. And it's seven to seven. All right, we're nearing the end here. Now we're at round number eight. Joel? This is a game to 30 points, right? (laughs) (laughs) Women and men of the fleet, this is your president. We have come to a crossroads in our long and painful journey. 
of all the decisions that I have had to make since assuming the presidency. None was more frightening or more difficult than agreeing to this alliance, but we have come to a crossroads in our long and painful journey. Movie president or real president? Is that the president from Battlestar Galactica? Double points. Yeah! <laughs> the previously aforementioned <laughs> President Laura Roslin, Battlestar Galactica 2004, talking about an alliance with the Cylons. <laughs> well done, Joel. I don't think you've even seen that. Oh, I, I've seen my fair share of episodes when you were watching them and binging on them. It's good stuff. All right, Jennifer, you're behind by two points. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen, you are about to embark upon a great crusade toward which we have striven these men a months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. Movie president, real president. I think that was a movie president. Incorrect. No. That is President Eisenhower, but before he was president, commander of troops leading them into battle at Normandy in 1944. It would have been a good that, movie. That's exactly what I would have said. Yeah. I don't like the, your, your questions. <laughs> that would have been a good movie, though. Uh, well, I'm sorry, I, but you cannot disagree with the question, Quizmaster. <laughs> Joel leading by two points. Now we're in round number nine. This story is one good men will teach their sons. From this day to the end of the world in it, we shall be remembered. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For who sheds his blood today shall be my brother, and those back home now are. But shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and they hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks. Movie president or real president? Uh, sounded very almost Shakespearean. But uh, I'm going to say it's just formal enough where I wonder if it might be a real president. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say real president. You were very close. It was King Henry V, oh. played by Kenneth Branagh in Henry V in 1989. Not exactly a president, but a, you know, a leader of a country. This so happens to be that this is a, a slightly altered version of the famous Band of Brothers speech. You have to double check the rules of this game, Tim. I think we've gone for movie presidents. I wrote the rules. I down. think this this game is rigged. Oh, uh, well, I wrote the I wrote gonna... the rules down ahead of time. I'll show them to you later, Jennifer. Now you have a chance to catch up. Now, still nine to seven. You have in a common cause fought and triumphed together. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. Movie president or real president? I'm going to say real president. But which one? I have no idea. Again, there are only 44 of them. Take a guess. <laughs> um, you put a bunch of Kennedy quotes in there, so I'm going to say Kennedy. Coolidge. Coolidge. It's actually George Washington in his farewell address. First president. Couldn't have gone, couldn't have gone with the most famous one. Um, but you did get one point there, so it's, it's nine to eight. Joel, round number ten. And we have basically three more rounds to go. Now I understand everyone shits emotional right now, but I've got a three-point plan that's going to fix everything. <laughs> um, tempted to say Lincoln, <laughs> Washington, Jefferson... 
Um, so that Taft had a dirty mouth. Taft, yeah. Um, I don't know. I think they did more than three points in their three-point plans. Um, you know, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say Donald Trump? Question mark? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, incorrect, although probably not too far off from okay. what they might have been predicting. Uh, it was a movie president. Oh. It's President Dwayne Alonso Mountain Dew Herbert Camacho, played by Terry Crews in a speech to Congress <laughs> in the movie Idiocracy in 2006. Uh, Jennifer, let's see if you can tie it up. I may not know much, but I do know the difference between chicken shit and chicken salad. <laughs> movie president or real president? Um, Carter. Mo- movie president. Carter. <laughs> oh, it is a real president. That's a famous quote from Lyndon Johnson. Uh, This is great. This is more fun than I've ever had in my entire (laughs) life. Uh, It's still nine to eight. Round number 11. Last two rounds. Ready? Joel? We have finally learned, at far too great a cost, that if the most powerful weapons ever created are ever unleashed, they will be fired not in anger, but fear. Movie president or real president? I'm going to say real president. Incorrect. Oh. Movie president, President Fowler, played by James Cronwell in Some of All Fears in 2002. Speech right at the end. That one could have been a real president. Now it's time for Jennifer to see if she can tie it up or take the lead. I know that a call to arms can stir the souls of men and women more than a call to lay them down. But that is why the voices for peace and progress must be raised together. Movie president, real president. I think this one sounds like a real president. But which one? Hmm. This sounds like a very peace-loving president, so I'm going to say Wilson. It is a real president, but it is President Barack Obama. Wow. In his speech in Prague, outlining his vision of a world free of nuclear weapons, a speech in 2009. So, but you have tied it up. It's nine to nine. It's round number 12. If, if there is a tie, I have a round 13 to, as a tiebreaker, but this is the final round. Joel, here we go. Isn't the universe big enough for the both of us? We could work together. Why be enemies? Because we're different. Is that why? Think of the things we could do. Think how strong we'd be. Together, nothing we can't accomplish. We can have it all or we can smash it all. Why can't we just get along? I'm going to say movie president. But I'm just struggling to place it. Part of me wants to say it sounds almost like something from Star Trek, but I don't think that would. It is a movie president. President James Dale, played by Jack Nicholson in the movie Mars Attacks. Oh, He's talking to an alien who proceeds to blow him up. All right. So Joel's taking the lead. Last second attempt by Jennifer. Here we go. Our foe did not come only to destroy our things or our people. They came to desecrate our way of life, to foul our beliefs, trample our freedom. And in this, not only did they fail, they granted us the greatest gift, a chance at our rebirth, our chance to get back to the best of who we are, to lead by example with the dignity integrity and honor that built this country and which will build it once again (laughs) movie president or real president i'm gonna have to go with movie president there 
That is correct. What from what movie? I I have no idea. President Benjamin Asher, played by Aaron Eckhart in Olympus Has Fallen. Ooh. So we have a tie. This just keeps going. I have one more round left here. So Jennifer, Joel, you're up next. Here we go. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Secretary, the missiles are flying. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm going to say movie president from G.I. Joe. Ha. It is a movie president played by Martin Sheen, President Greg Stilson, basically nuking the world in the movie The Dead Zone from 1983. Joel has taken the lead on the tiebreaker. Jennifer, this is your last chance. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth. Or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Movie president or real president? Um, movie president. Ooh. President Ronald Reagan in a speech in 1964 <laughs> called The Time of Choosing. That puts Joel in the lead, 11 to 10. He is a victory. Every, everyone. <laughs> Couldn't have done it without my Coolidge history knowledge. <laughs> Jennifer, thank you very much for coming on. Sorry it turned out that way, but don't worry. We'll watch some more movies. Yeah, I am uh, just about the last person who's qualified to do any sort of movie trivia game. So I think I did pretty well there. And that makes you perfectly qualified to be on this podcast. <laughs> Not bad. Is so anything Mr. present? Not too bad at all. So again, congratulations to Joel for winning that game. But we can't all just play games on the podcast. Let's get back to serious business. Let's talk about uh, alien computer viruses on Macintosh laptops. And whether or not those things can actually work. So one of our podcast listeners that goes by at the salamander on Twitter asked us to talk about the nonsense with the computer virus that Jeff Goldblum cooks up on his Macintosh laptop and uh, whether or not that would actually be able to mess with the alien tech. So I'll say, you know, this is movie land uh, magic, but I think this is a case where a deleted scene in the movie would have actually explained it a little bit better. Uh, but this deleted scene was left on the cutting room floor or the computer trash bin, wherever they edit movies these days. Because uh, in this deleted scene, which I showed Joel uh, after the movie we watched was finished, it shows Goldblum detailing his signal code discovery to the Area 51 scientists. And they talk about how the signal was the same one that's read that's on a readout of the small fighter jet uh, spacecraft. So I guess this was how they were able to communicate and develop some kind of primary or binary code signal to hack the mothership and disrupt the computers. Which is funny, given that they are an incredibly technologically advanced, uh -huh. um, you know, civilization. Uh, they can defy gravity, kind of move an entire planet's worth of people and metal and brawn, um, you know, around the galaxy, and yet they got to use 1990s era technology to communicate. Seems so. like it. Well, I don't really understand. I mean, they're on dial-up. That's basically what they're on. Let's basically, be honest. Basically, I don't. I don't even think they. Yeah, I don't know what they're going or for. Or singular there. wireless. Well, apparently they have Wi-Fi because I don't know why it affected <laughs> the shields and not just like the the radio communications between the ships. Why the individual shields broke down, but it did. Mm. 
so now we have to talk about it. And but let's also just like stop and think like different computer languages. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the very fact that his virus was somehow compatible. Well, I guess basically he saw but, the signal. He figured it out that's how they communicate. Now I'm basically going to jumble it up so that they can't talk to each other. Yeah, but it's it's kind of multiple layers of disbelief. Well, I think it's because Alien Jerry's uh, cousin just didn't, very, didn't do a very good job setting up their IT system. They're like, Jerry, we need you to come up with a really sick communication system. Don't screw it up like last time. Like the last five planets that we've got beaten up on. Just uh, do smoke signals. Yeah, pretty much. That would have worked better. Pigeons. Yep. Uh, so bear with me, Joel, for a quick second, because I'm going to make a little bit of a stretch to have I will bear turn this for a co- turn this into a conversation about nuclear weapons. Okay. Computer hacking, viruses, cyber attacks, all of these things have long been concerns for the U.S. military as it tries to protect its nuclear command and control system from outside disruption. Jeff Goldblum or otherwise. A reminder uh, here that the Nuclear Command and Control System, otherwise known as NC2, is made up of systems, communication paths, and procedures used by the military to confirm a presidential order to deploy nuclear weapons and ensure that the command makes its way down to the missileers in the silo, the pilots and the bombers, and the sailors down in the submarines. The, with the way the technology always seems to fail when you want it to work, uh, this is a difficult process, even under normal circumstances, but you can imagine how difficult it would be to get that order from the president down to the person who actually pushes the button if you're under cyber attack. A January 2013 report by the Defense Science Board called Resilient Military Systems in the Advanced Cyber Threat, it concluded that the U.S. Nuclear Command and Control System had yet to be uh, tested in terms of its vulnerability to large-scale cyber attacks. And the report recommended that the Pentagon study the issue further to assure national leadership that the nuclear deterrent was survivable against large-scale, full-spectrum cyber attacks. In response to these worries, the head of the U.S. Strategic Command in 2013, uh, U.S. Air Force General Robert Keller, told Congress that while he saw no significant vulnerability, he still ordered an end-to-end comprehensive review because we don't know what we don't know. When asked whether Russia or China could stop one of his missiles, he said, Senator, I don't know. Sir, apparently they can only hack the emails, but what could go wrong with that? Uh, Well, even if the NC2 itself is airtight against cyber attacks, one of the things the military is concerned about are hackers disrupting commercial power grids, communication grids, other types of indirect systems that the military relies on in order to mess with the U.S. nuclear forces. Uh, Similar to another one of our favorite movies, uh, Live Free or Die Hard, the fourth Die Hard movie. I think it's called a fire sale. Yeah, fire sale. Fire sale, where they attack every system, communications, uh, uh, power grid systems, all this stuff all at once to have uh, uh, the largest impact all at once. Um, Of course, there are backup generators uh, and other communication routes that the military creates, but this complicates their mission when they're only given a few minutes to respond to an incoming missile strike. They, as we saw in the presidential debates, about uh, it was clearly Clinton mentioned about four to five minutes is how long it takes for the president's order uh, to be given until the missiles will be in the air. But during that time, if all of a sudden all of the communication systems and electronic uh, systems are breaking down, you can imagine that taking a little bit longer. 
next thing I, I want to mention really quickly, which was the uh, Stuxnet computer worm. Uh, this was something that we we saw on the news a couple of years ago, which I think is a pretty good example of a so-called cyber weapon being used against a, a nuclear weapon installation. And without getting into too much detail, because I want to have another movie in mind that I want to get into uh, this into the weeds, but Stuxnet was discovered in the summer of 2010 by a security company um, after it spread beyond its intended target. It was called Stuxnet by Symantec, the Norton antivirus company. Uh, who discovered it. And from what is available in the public, it appears the virus was created to disrupt the Iranian nuclear program. And probably uh, this is where this pr impact started around the mid to the mid to late 2000s. Specifically, it targeted their enrichment facility and the use of control boxes made by Simeon's technology, which regulated how fast and when the centrifuges spun in order to enrich the uranium. The malware caused the centrifuges to spin out of control and tear themselves apart. It also prevented those safety mechanisms from kicking in by blocking the various sensors that would show something irregular was going on. So they didn't know what was going on. Eventually, they were able to figure it out and then set back the Iranian nuclear program uh, by several years. And so and the fascinating thing is this wasn't introduced um, remotely. It was introduced in a closed system at the enrichment facility at Nantance through a flash drive that was probably infected on a Windows computer by one of the plant workers. So similar to uh, Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith flying their spaceship, you have to actually physically dock into the mothership. Uh, it's similar to them go walking in, plugging in a flash drive, because this Iranian uh, enrichment facility didn't have internet. It wasn't connected to the outside system. It was a closed system, but they were still able to get in. So I'm, I presume the United States has never confirmed nor denied that Correct. any kind of cyber warfare was waged? Correct. Uh, some reports by uh, the New York Times have indicated that it was likely some combination between the U.S. and the Israeli intelligence services. There's even some reports that they may have created uh, somewhere in the United States like a mock enrichment facility and tested this stuff out. Hmm. So at least this is an ex a real-world example of an external force using – uh, computer technology to disrupt um, their weapons program. But that's 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 a real-life example of things. But I really want to get weird right now, Joel. So let's talk about UFO conspiracies and the UFO conspiracy community. Within that, there's a pretty active segment that believes aliens are closely watching our world's nuclear deterrent. It's a rigged system. It's a rigged system by, rigged by the aliens. Yep. Uh, some of these individuals are actually people who used to work on our nuclear forces. For example, Robert Salas, a former U.S. Air Force officer managing a Minuteman ICBM base uh, up in Montana, he wrote in uh, March 1967 that people under his command reported seeing another number of UFOs flying above their missile silo right before alarm bells started to ring, blaring a signal that all of the missiles had gone off alert. He says it took hours to get everything back up and running, and no one can figure out what happened. The power didn't go out, but the guidance and control systems malfunctioned. Why would aliens be so concerned about our nuclear weapons? Well, I mean... Thank I you for asking, Joel. There are two basic okay. schools of thought. One, aliens hate nuclear weapons and love peace. This is the theory advanced by Michael Sala, who runs the website Exopolitics, the political implications of the extraterrestrial presence. 
He argues that when President Obama gave a speech in Prague in 2009 on his vision for a world free of nuclear weapons, that this goal by President Obama was welcomed by the UFO watcher community because they believe that aliens are simply waiting for us to get rid of our nuclear weapons before they come down, announce their presence, and welcome us into the Galactic Federation amongst the stars. Which clearly contradicts with the Star Trek uh, mythology where nuclear weapons were used to actually push human civilization in the future with the advancement of warp speed. If mm. I remember correctly, I think we'd we'll have to bring in Gabe. Yeah, we'd have to ask to Gabe confirm, about that. But uh, but others have taken this logic even further and have said that aliens have shut down our nuclear weapons and warheads in the past and will prevent nuclear war should it ever outbreak. All right, I'm 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 just gonna take a step back here. Um, are there purported like events that they think, I mean, other than the, the solace event. Well, that's, the, the that's UFOs? one of them. There's been, um, reports of it was 67. Who knows what they were smoking? <laughs> well, there's been saying. reports of, uh, UFOs following airplanes, uh, test pilots that had nuclear weapons and they were following them and there were some malfunctions with various systems. There's a whole community out there. Uh, I don't know which ones to link to, but there's whole communities out there that say that there have been examples of nuclear weapons going offline, and that they know how to do it. And they're just waiting for a nuclear war to break out. And they're going to be nice enough to stop it. So we don't have to worry about it too much. But there's still that second school of thought. Which holds that aliens hate nuclear weapons. Not because they're peace loving. But because nuclear weapons mess with their UFOs. This theory holds that alien ships fly. By using anti-gravity technology that relies on the manipulation of magnetic fields. I guess like a a flying spaceship magneto-like technology. A nuclear explosion, because it causes an electromagnetic pulse, or EMP, can actually crash UFOs. French UFO researcher Eric Julian said that there was a correlation between UFO behavior around nuclear tests and 74 alleged UFO crashes. In other words, he argues that the use of nuclear weapons affects the time-space continuum in ways that disrupt UFO navigation and propulsion systems. That's perfectly reasoned. You're perfectly reasoned. Can I just say that I think you're being incredibly kind and diplomatic by calling uh, them two schools of thought. Uh, either calling it thoughtful or a school of thought. Well, but. if I'm going to be super critical about stuff, I have to give at least people the benefit of the doubt. But the point is, is that in this light, testing nuclear weapons or threatening to use them against aliens would be considered by them a provocative act, which will result in our ultimate destruction. And hopefully the aliens that are watching us didn't think that Independence Day was a documentary or a war plan. Joel, what do you think of all this stuff? I mean, I'm just processing this all for the first time. I mean, you know, these days, I think everything's fair game, right? Maybe we can get him into the White House, do a tutorial. It's a new president takes office. Mm -hmm. I think it'd be good. Well, so this... I'd like to see them in, uh, write a screenplay for a movie. That'd be some <laughs> interesting stuff right there. Well, speaking of movies, uh, the sequel to Independence Day, which I did not make you watch because I am a kind podcast host. I appreciate that. Independence Day Resurgence takes this idea and actually plays with it a little bit, that aliens know that nuclear weapons uh, defeated them in the past and that they've devised ways to, to manage that. There's a cool scene in the movie where um, the kind of Will Smith, Jeff Goldblum scene takes place where they try to blow up the the, the aliens with um, what they call cold fusion warheads and they try to blow up the ship similar to that scene over Houston but is that a technology that they developed because of the alien technology I think so I'll, I'll get to that in one second okay. but I, I want to mention that the aliens uh 
are able to stop this nuclear attack by shooting out these green flying frisbees that render our nuclear weapons uh, ineffective because they put a force field around the blast. But this was a pretty cool scene that I did not expect. The bombs go off inside the spaceship. They thought all all of our heroes think that they're going to have a suicide mission. But really what happens is an explosion in a big old sphere and then it just goes away. It's not able to blow up anything else. It contains the whole blast room and protects the ship. So what exactly are cold fusion warheads, Tim? I don't exactly know. They don't really explain what these are, but apparently from the movie and the you know context clues, they're like our largest nuclear bombs that we have today, but dialed to 11. Like they are large bombs because they even say uh, the head of the Earth Space Defenses uh, says in the movie that a bunch of cold fusion bombs put together could destroy everything from Las Vegas to Houston. Again, Wait. Houston comes up. So, Tim, you said there's a head of the Earth Space Defenses. Tell yeah, me a little bit that. about that. Is in, this in the movie? There's also like a division of NASA. We've UN. Used the, we've used the technology that the aliens left uh, at the end of this movie in 1996, and because it's 20 years later um, in the movie time as well as our time between the sequels, they've used that technology to put uh, advanced spacecraft in the air. We have a, a moon base. We have a base on Mars. We've got a base on. Uh, one of the moons of Saturn. We have like basically bases all the way around. We also have this circle of fancy missiles or laser cannons that fire, and that's like the Earth defense grid. So this guy, uh, William Fincher, that's the actor's name, um, plays the the head of the Earth's de- space defenses. So basically Elon Musk's dream on steroids. Pretty much, all pretty right. much. Um, but he has these, he talks about these, these cold fusion bombs and... So I really want to save a discussion, I keep saying this, but a more detailed discussion of cold fusion nuclear technology for when we do either the movie The Saint or Chain Reaction. Uh, maybe, Tim, we should uh, inform our audience that we'll have our upcoming Keanu Reeves and Val Kilmer podcasts coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, stay tuned. I'm, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for it. I didn't know that. I'm excited for it. Uh, but basically, cold fusion is the idea of fusing together light elements without having to rely on the kind of heat and pressure that you need to you to do this, which is basically the kind of heat and pressure that you would find at the center of the sun. Quite a lot of uh, force there. In uh, thermonuclear bombs, uh, heat, pressure, and x-rays are generated from a fission reaction, which is when you separate elements of uranium and or plutonium. Uh, you basically split the atom and it generates a lot of heat. That heat and pressure and x-rays will fuse together lighter elements of hydrogen, like uh, deuterium and tritium. This results uh, in an element that is surprisingly lighter than the two other original elements put together. And because of what Einstein told us, uh, E equals mc squared or energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, that formula says that the difference in mass between the two sets of objects uh, is because there's that difference, there has to be an output of energy as well, which takes the form, in this case, of a giant explosion. So a cold fusion warhead isn't really the terminology that we would use in this context. This sounds a lot like the theoretical bomb that a lot of bomb designers think about, which is called a pure fusion warhead. Basically, this warhead can fuse together those lighter hydrogen elements without relying on the intense heat and pressure of a fission reaction. Um, But scientists have not figured out a way to do this yet. Maybe they just need the help of some invading alien force. 
Are they trying to figure out how to do that? They tried a while ago, uh, and now <laughs> they've not anymore because it's it's very difficult. You you've heard maybe of the National Ignition Facility uh, out in Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Wait, so the it's... giant super the giant super laser type deal that we have. Okay, is that, that a technical can, term? The giant super duper laser <laughs> uh, that we have out there. Um, it's actually kind of fun. It was a, a place where they filmed uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, that second rebooted Star Trek movie. Near the end of that movie, there's a scene that actually was filmed at the, the National Ignition Facility. And I got to tour this facility in 2014, I think it was. Uh, but this is like one of the world's largest lasers. And what it does is it, it creates for a very brief moment uh, intense heat uh, by basically shooting a laser and, and channeling it through a number of mirrors and other amplifying techniques to create superheat. And they're trying to figure out there if they can do some sort of cold fusion type system. Uh, well, it's not really cold fusion, but it's the closest thing they've been able to get to generating that type of uh, force without first relying on a fission reaction. So they're not really trying anymore, uh, but it's certainly one of those things that's always on the tip of sci-fi writers' minds. But it, but the, the lack of activity seems like it's more because of technical challenges rather than any kind of intentional ethical, you know, should we be doing this to kind of bring in a Jeff Goldblum discussion Correct. from Jurassic Park? Uh, you, you spent so much time uh, thinking about how you could. You, you didn't spend enough time thinking about whether you should. Well, did, did Jeff Goldblum just walk in the room? I think, where did he go? He was just here a second uh, ago. Yeah, apartments.com. Uh, <laughs> find an apartment. It's, uh, it's much more uh, of a technical question than uh, it is a, a moral one, at least as far as um, – the scientific community goes. I'm sure there's some, there's definitely some that have argued against things like the hydrogen bomb, which was called the super um, back in the fifties, whether we shouldn't build this, we'll just keep the other ones. Um, but I think the funny thing is ironically, pure fusion weapons are not really conceived of being larger nuclear bombs. If anything, they're considered to be low yield weapons because you don't need a large fission uh, reaction to take place. You can just do these fusion reactions and you can build smaller yield nuclear bombs. They were thinking about these things would be bunker buster bombs or bombs that are similar to tactical nuclear weapons. And surprisingly, most of the radioactive material that gets shot out from a nuclear bomb and a thermonuclear bomb comes from the fission reaction, the uranium and the plutonium. A pure fusion bomb would in some ways be a little cleaner in terms of radioactive fallout. Now, the side effect of it is is that uh, fusion reactions tend to result more uh, result in more fast neutrons, which are very dangerous to living things when they get hit by them. So you can have a bomb, depending on the size of the blast, where it will destroy more living things than knocking over buildings because people would die pretty instantly by the fast neutrons flying through the buildings and killing all life in that area. Depends on how you define uh, a clean weapon or not. But either way, the movie kind of kind of bumbles this up a little bit. Uh, but I think it's an interesting way that they still tried to bring in nuclear weapons, but by just making them a little bit fancier, by giving them that cold name, like cold fusion warheads. So that's most of the nuke stuff that I have here. But let's still talk about Independence Day as a movie, because I think it has an interesting place in, in film history, as well as, at least for you and I, uh, in terms of movies that we really liked uh, growing up. So I don't know, Joel, what do you, why don't you lead us in a discussion of, of what you thought about this particular film? Well, I mean, undeniably, Independence Day took Hollywood blockbusters to a new level. Uh, mm -hmm. 
you know, it made the summer blockbuster. Right. So many things about how movies are made and marketed that we take for granted. Independence Day was instrumental in developing. So everything from actual actors being prominent mm-hmm. in cinema, like Will Smith, uh, Jeff Goldblum, uh, to you know advertising during the Super Bowl, kind of modern disaster movie. You'd obviously seen alien movies before, but like Roland Emmerich said, you know, no one had done it at that kind of scale uh, before. I actually thought it was funny that that Roger Ebert kind of panned it for using uh, predictable aliens, predictable ships. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can see that to some extent. I mean, mean, it's a lot like the the aliens. Yeah. 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 Uh, Kind of that exoskeleton type structure and kind of tails and stuff like that but this one talks right this one like has tele yeah well it's got the alien inside an alien kind of thing so but i I mean in my mind it was critical not critical in in my mind it was cool because it took some of those familiar elements like with comic books and, and anything over decades or generations you know Key storylines and key elements of stories that resonate with people have a habit of being reinvented for new audiences with new means of technology. Mm -hmm. And with cinema, I think Independence Day was that perfect time in the mid-1990s as computers were really starting to be integrated with movies to kind of amp it up. And I I think you saw that with – I think science fiction generally is perfect for this because you can marry – you know, technology is kind of a tool for telling the story, but also technology can be part of the story as far as an advanced tech, uh, technologically advanced race and, mm-hmm. and what have you. I think you saw that with Terminator and some of the other movies in the early to mid nineties where they really embraced that. Um, as far as Jurassic te- Park, yeah, Jurassic Park, exactly. Like the the we we hear about this genetic manipulation that we're starting to be able to do, and and how far could you take that in terms of uh, story making, uh, storytelling? So, you know, is, is it the greatest piece of cinema? No, uh, but <laughs> I mean, you you can't deny that it's uh, a thrill ride from beginning to end. I I really still like this movie. Um, I've had to to watch it a couple times recently. For the, for the purpose of this podcast. So I think it's one of those films that I need to see maybe every five years or so. And I think it has a still pretty good burn for me uh, yep. while, I, while, I, while I watch it. But I, I certainly enjoy the the unique time and place that this movie uh, happens. For example, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. the, the idea of uh, – uh, it appears to be some kind of liberal president. I mean I don't – I don't know if it's Jed exactly Bartlett the case. Like it's like a Jeb Bartlett type, but it, you know it's during the Clinton years, and it's fascinating to me because it's you know it's after the end of the Cold War, so that's during this time period. A lot of the movies that we've watched so far take place in the '90s, and it was a time where the Soviet Union was gone. We didn't know essentially who our next enemy was. If we needed one, what what how do we define ourselves when during the Cold War we largely defined our nation in opposition to these other forces? So it was a time where we were trying to figure out what to do, and there was this concept of the peace div- dividend. The, the Cold War is over. We can take our military and, and, and make it smaller to match the threats that we see today. Yeah, terrorism is certainly a thing that's that's coming up, but it hasn't – Reached the level of, of consciousness since, definitely pre nine eleven yeah pre nine eleven but after the World Trade Center bombings so it's like it's still yeah. there like there's ideas of things right. that that are concerned us but we don't really know exactly what and you have this president uh, Thomas Whitmore who seems to be kind of a smart guy but he seems also he's a fighter jock he's a, he's a, a Gulf War pilot hero um, who I think for some people I don't know if this is necessarily what maybe what the director was going for but it definitely was in contrast to 
uh, Bill Clinton, who is all the great things that he may have done in terms of the economy and other kind of policies. I think for some people, he, he, he was it's a very con- it's a big contrast. Of the president that's there and the president that was in 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 real life there. Well, that's a, I, I guess in ways that kind of a, in, in its own escapist fantasy for some people. I same guess, same way that Jed Bartlett was in The West Wing. Yeah, I can see. I guess a tough liberal president. I mean, I I took his. Um, I mean, when they talk about him being a fighter pilot, I guess I didn't take it that far. <laughs> I thought it was more of a. Uh, a naked plot device in order to be able to justify why the president would jump into mm. a, a fighter jet and be like, let's go boys. Um, <laughs> but it certainly works. That's, yeah. That's a, that's a good point. As it's, far as, it certainly worked. Yeah. Cause there aren't a lot of movies that I can imagine later on where a president led the, the fight against <laughs> whatever it happened to be. It's always the, when you say it out loud, some of the plot points of independence day, <laughs> I'm just like, and then the crop duster destroyed the, yeah. Unfortunately that wide. was a deleted scene and they decided to change that up. Uh, but one other thing I'll say that's interesting too is because um, it, because of the fact this is a pre nine eleven movie that destroys New York City, uh, the, some of the visual effects people after nine eleven uh, were watching some of the TV coverage and they said quote that they felt guilty about maybe making their work of blowing up the White House look so good because they might have been they what they said was the nucleus of an idea uh, for someone to say hey let's crash a plane into the White House which is. I don't know if I would necessarily put the blame on them for that. Uh, I'm sure that idea is not a crazy, crazy one. Uh, if anything, I think there was a um, Tom Clancy novel where uh, oh, yeah. pres- terrorists blow up the Capitol during the State of the Union. On 9-11, yeah. when I was in high school, we were just sitting in our desks like most people that of that age uh, watching CNN as everything was going on. They literally I'm, – I'm using literally a lot. Maybe it's my <laughs> inner Joe Biden – um, but they, they did, they literally brought him on the, on air live to talk about his book. Tom Clancy? Yeah. I remember wow. specifically, I was like, okay, I guess that's one thing you could do to talk about live news going on. But so I, I think this movie is fascinating because I compare it, uh, not to other movies similar in terms of the time and everything, but the sequel. Because the sequel takes place 20 years later. It's a very different time. Uh, movies often can reflect the context that they take place in, especially movies about nuclear weapons, because they, they reflect either the fears or the anxieties or the hopes and dreams and all that stuff of the generation of the people that made the movie. Um, oftentimes, more than not. But this movie, I think some of the things that were really stood out to me was we talked about in the plot discussion at the end of the film, of the first one, the the they figure out how to destroy those city destroying spaceships and then they use morse code to get on the horn and tell the rest of the world how to take them down that's what robert loge's mm-hmm. character says mm-hmm. and then you see like flashes of other world armies and you see i think you see the british uh you see some uh north african i think maybe like egypt um in their defense forces and then cue you the see, montage cue the montage Star and then Wars you style. see japan the japanese self defense force is there, which is fascinating because obviously Japan in the 1990s was considered to be much more of an aspiring rising power um, than it is today because of after decades of economic stagnation. But what you had, you know, who you didn't see China. China wasn't involved at all, and I think in in the first uh, Independence Day movie. But of course, 20 years later, who's one of the main stars of the new Independence Day movie? But the nation of China. China's the, some of the first scenes in the movie take place. In China, um, one of the main heroes of the film. Does it actually take Chinese place pilot. in China, or I mean, in it kind of one of those negotiated? 
Well, like it, uh, Michael Bay style, or well, it appears to be. I mean, it was filmed and to represent China. Okay. One of the first like large parts of the Earth that get destroyed is in China. So it's kind of like Michael <laughs> Bay, where it seems like countries are, are are happy to have their their cities destroyed by <laughs> monsters or robots or aliens or anything because it's still like, oh, that's it's not New York City, who I've seen a thousand times. That's true. You know, maybe you're more likely to then go see a movie because there's the watch other out, side Boise. Of it yeah, watch, watch out, Tuscaloosa, out. Sweden. Um, or Sweden, yep. But see, I think it's one of those things where it, you see in a lot of movies now that have recently have come out, like The Martian is pretty heavy to draw in a Chinese audience. And it does a lot with uh, China being involved in uh, their space program, saving essentially the United States mm-hmm. and, the, and The Martian there. Uh, we hold a, a screening at work where one of our top... Uh, people who work at my at my institution, that George Washington University, the Space Policy Institute, a uh, guy who used to work at NASA for many years, had a screening and we got to answer questions, kind of similar to this podcast. And one of the things he said was, um, you know, China, they have a pretty well-advanced space program. They actually just launched another one of their, but they're not nearly as advanced as they're described in, in the film. We weren't either, but the point is, like, a lot of films like this, like Transformers, has lots of scenes of, of China being put into, into effect. You have the new Robo cop movie even has like lots of scenes that take place in china which i think is just a fascinating filmmaking phenomenon that china only lets in about 30 or so movies every year uh from the outside and to get in you can't really be too uh critical of china uh and you can't you have to basically get something to sweeten the deal and sometimes you get results similar to that new red dawn movie which originally switched out the russians from the 1980s to the chinese and they, they said you couldn't do that, and also you can't have that movie or any other future movies from your production company come into China. So they changed it to the North Koreans because <laughs> the North Koreans don't have a big of a movie-going audience as, as China. It won't show but, up on North Korean Netflix. Right. Yeah. So I don't know really what I'm trying to say here. I just think it's really fascinating to see this trend, and I think it's it's certainly interesting. I'm glad that there's some creativity in Hollywood uh, so that it's not just the same cities uh, being destroyed and the same types of heroes every time. I think if one of these invasions actually did occur, there would be a larger response. And it wouldn't just be a few heroes from the United States. It would be some more of a collaborative effort to deal with it. Well, there, there's kind of a – you can look at it from two different perspectives, right, which you just kind of expressed. One is, is it – is the story taking on the the broader dimension of kind of this the world we live in in 2016, where other countries play mm-hmm. a more active world uh, role in in world events? Which, you know, on its face, it's like, yeah, of course, you know, we are a a planet. We're not just one country, so the the stories should reflect that, especially if you're talking about a global calamity or global effort. But the but you also pointed out that there is an economic dimension to it, as far as um, you know, uh, you know whether you're trying to get into the Chinese market or appeal to like global audiences. Like, uh, what was the the giant robot uh, fighting oh, monsters? Oh yeah, Pacific movie? Rim. Pacific Rim. Right. Like, you know, it kind of didn't do that well in the, the United ones, yeah. States, but that was like a movie. But also like Transformers, where uh, they they took on a more global dimension in their storytelling, and they were able to, and they did really well, you know, internationally, and. Just kind of interesting how you have those two different forces where, you know, in some ways they're purely economic, but they're also kind of driving more diverse storylines, which, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways are, are really good. Obviously, you can make a really bad movie that might still appeal to a, a broad audience. but um, and, and I think that you, you just made me uh, think of something else, too, which is that 
this very art this this uh, artistic choice that directors and filmmakers need to make between trying to tell the story they want to tell and then also having to balance that with the economic realities of wanting to appeal to an audience or is it because they have their story is is it involves other countries because it reflects either the reality of it or what they're trying to portray um it's the same thing that maybe writers of these kind of movies that i criticize on a podcast about technical accuracy with nuclear weapons it's the same challenge that they make too because they can either have a movie that's completely technically correct as far as we can know with nuclear weapons and these types of systems and the debates that people have or they can do sh movie shorthand they can have a, a nuclear bomb on a missile that gets fired and it has a little radioactive warning symbol on the side. A narrative device. A narrative device, a yeah. shorthand. Right. You know, you see radioactive waste isn't a green slimy thing that glows. But because we know about it from The Simpsons or from any other kind of stuff, uh, Toxic Avenger or movies in the past, it's something that we think about and it's movie shorthand. Um, so that's that same challenge that writers uh, have for, for when they write these kind of films is how do you balance uh, the story you want to tell with reality? And is if that's even important? Because I think for most for most writers, uh, of, like most filmmakers, it's not really that important. It's the story that they're trying to tell. Um, but that doesn't make me sleep well at night when I can't get over the fact that they have a cruise missile on a bomber that doesn't have a cruise missile. But overall... Let's rate this movie. We change our rating system each time uh, to match the movie because we want to make sure that we're getting the best rating possible for our listeners. So for this movie, how about we rate it one out of five victory cigars? You know, the ones that Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum smoke at the end of the movie? Well, just one of them would be kind of sad because that meant both of them didn't survive. Uh, two of them mean they both survive. Five, that's quite a celebration. They that's got a celebration there. party right there. That's a whole party. That's that's back down on Earth, you know, everybody having fun with the fireworks. So, Joel, how would you rate this? One out of five victory cigars. You know, I don't want to say it's tough. You know, like Independence Day, and I've said this before, so I feel it's consistent. Even though I, I reserve the right to change it at any time for any movie, past or present. <laughs> but I feel... Independence Day was going for a very particular thing, you know? It was trying to be, you know, it was aspiring to be that big Hollywood blockbuster. I feel it did that with Flying Colors. Mm -hmm. It's a fun thrill ride. Is it the greatest disaster movie in terms of narrative depth and precision? Probably not. But I'm going to give it four victory cigars. That is exactly what I'm going to do, too. I'm also going to do four. I think it hits what it needs to hit. And yep. I think the movie, if I would have not saw the sequel, I would have maybe considered giving us a three or a 3.5 victory cigars. But seeing what they tried to do with the, the sequel and it Wait, just so seeing a bad sequel made the first one better. It, it in a way it did because it reminded me of, it didn't, you know, I don't, not one of those people that if, when Michael Bay makes the, the Ninja Turtles movie, it doesn't ruin my Capitalizing on your nostalgia. It doesn't, yeah, but it doesn't ruin my, my perception and my enjoyment of the first one. Hmm. Um, I can separate those two, those two things pretty well in my head. Um, I can't separate, uh, film enjoyment and technical accuracy but i'm able to separate the enjoyment of two different films but for this one it, i can see i don't I, i'm still trying to formulate because i only recently saw the sequel again but it just doesn't work that well in in the second one there's too many attempts at trying to either recreate the original thing and not and it's just not really working well or you didn't have the right set of actors there's no will smith star power that comes out of this film 
it tries to hit the same beats and it doesn't, and that's too bad. There's some cool scenes in the movie, uh, but it doesn't really work. It makes me appreciate what they did in the first one and how uh, even 20 years later that film still has a, an impact on, on us today. Yeah, and well, it's also funny to go back where kind of like with Jurassic Park a little bit where um, you, you, you watch it and you – in different scenes, you're like, I know this has been done after this movie a hundred times, be it dinosaurs or just like monsters or aliens, what have you. But because it was so kind of fresh at the time, mm-hmm. it still feels like it still holds up. Yeah. Like there are weaknesses Other things with have made it. it cliche, not the, necessarily the right, original. Right, right. And, you know, obviously Independence Day was borrowing from other movies that were kind of in that same genre of, you know, alien movies or disaster movies and stuff like that. But there was just something about it in that time and space with those mm-hmm. characters that it just clicked and it was it was fresh and new for that generation and so you know 20 years from now we're i i haven't seen the sequel uh so it was kind of funny to uh before this recording to kind of go back and forth with Tim on on what happened um 20 years from now are we going to be watching that sequel or are we going to be watching the original my money's probably on the original well, I think um, by then we'll have actually had an alien invasion, so uh, we'll see possible. how this goes. Um, but if before the aliens invade and, and, and ruin our day, uh, if there's, I have three recommendations. If you want to read more about the type of topics that we discussed in, in this podcast. First, a 1998 study called Independence Day or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Enola Gay by Michael Rogan, uh, who looked at Independence Day and its apocalyptic and violent imagery and how they became a huge staple in cinema. I think one of the fascinating things relating to this film is that famous speech in uh, that Bill Pullman does about uh, Independence Day and the mankind and all of that. Um, that was actually filmed in front of the same hangar that held the Enola Gay, which was the bomber that dropped the first nuclear bomb on Hiroshima. Almost to the day of like several decades later, that same location and everything kind of worked out that way. So another fascinating, I'm sure, coincidental connection uh, to nuclear weapons. The second thing is I'll recommend James, Har- James Harris did an oral history of the Independence Day speech, where you can read about it at Complex Media. And I'll again, I'll link to it in the show notes. He talks to the movie's director and writers, as well as Bill Pullman, Vivica Fox, and a real speechwriter for the Clinton White House. And there's a few fun tidbits from that article. Uh, one is that the speech was derivative of Henry V's St. Crispin Day speech, which was one of the, the answers in the trivia uh, games that we we did with Joel and Jennifer. Um, but the writers also wrote up basically in five minutes this whole speech and then never changed it. They always thought they would rewrite it later, but I guess their first draft uh, worked out just as good. And the movie was originally going to be titled, you ever, Joel, do you remember this? I don't know if you heard this. It was originally going to be called Doomsday. Not Independence Day, hmm. but Doomsday. That was what the studio Fox wanted to call it. The writers added the line in Bill Pullman's speech. Today we celebrate our Independence Day so that they couldn't change the movie's title because it was already in the middle of the most famous climactic part of the movie. Um, Finally, if you want to learn more about the Stuxnet and the nexus of cybersecurity and nuclear technology, check out Kim Zetter's book, Countdown to Zero Day. Stuxnet 
and the launch of the world's first digital weapon by Crown Publishers in 2014. A lot of great details on this story, uh, and you can see how we should be worried not just about uh, hackers and Jeff Goldblum's of the world. And thumb drives. And thumb drives. We should be worried about how these things uh, get interconnected. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, at Nuclear Podcast, and we have an email account waiting for your emails, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the program, please go on iTunes or Google Play, wherever you listen to this, and consider subscribing and leaving a rating. It really helps us grow the audience, and you know we want to know that you're still liking the show. This has been Tim Westmeyer. And Joel. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.